Okay, welcome to Wayne's World. It's Wayne's World with Wayne Goldsmith. Always enjoy our Wednesday morning chats with Wayne Goldsmith. WGcoaching.com is the website. Shortly to embark on a tour over here. So we'll give you those tour dates, etc. near the end of the segment. Wayne Goldsmith. Good morning, Wayne. Good morning, Pony. How are you this beautiful morning? Very good. Did you see that Bledisloe Cup rugby on the weekend by any chance? Oh, sorry, I'm losing you. I'm losing the signals dropping out. I, <laughs> I, I can't hear you. Hello, are you still there? No, I, I got... Uh, I got very excited for about 16 minutes and thought maybe this will be a game, but uh, class always tells in the end, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly will seem to, but uh, let's let's hope that uh, that the uh, the sights and sounds of Waiheke Island can get the Wallabies back on track uh, for a more competitive <laughs> showing on, on Saturday. We might talk about that at the end, actually, because I want to uh, want to open this morning with a, a topic we've been discussing a little bit uh, on the show this morning, and that's uh, that's around um, around females coaching males, males coaching females, that sort of thing. But but also recently, it wouldn't have escaped your attention that uh, a number of codes on this side of the Tasman have uh, have initiated independent reviews of the way that their elite teams are run. And a lot of this comes down to uh, to the perceived coaching styles. And I just wanted to maybe talk to you, first of all, about about tough coaching, about old-school values, and, and, and whether they're still valid and whether they can cross the line. Well, look, that's, uh, this is one of my favourite topics because, as uh, you and our listeners will know, that I've had a long and very strong commitment to the sport of swimming, and of all the sports, those what we call grunt sports, swimming, cycling, rowing, distance running, gymnastics, those sports that have got the huge time commitment involved that have based their culture and their success largely on a relentless commitment to hard work, they're the ones at the moment that are coming under closer scrutiny because I think people in the phrase that I use, Piney, is to be successful, to get to the top in any walk of life. And I was listening to... Billy Joel on YouTube yesterday and he said for the first 20 years of his music career, he was he was writing music, practicing music or performing 18 hours a day. So there's no doubt in any field of endeavor, you've got to be committed to relentless hard work to get to the top. But the phrase I use for coaches is there's a difference between being hard and fast hard. There's a difference between just being hard in terms of very committed, never giving in, being resilient, giving everything you can to everything you do and going over the top and being just excessive with the demands that you have on athletes. How then does a coach deliver tough messages, criticism, without being labelled a bully? It's got to be based on what the athlete wants, Pine. And I think this is, this is um, again, a discussion I was having with some swimming coaches a little while ago. I say, guys, in the old days, I love to talk about the old days because it makes me sound a bit like my dad, but in the old days, in the 60s and 70s, when we didn't know, really didn't really understand sport, we didn't understand the importance of the holistic approach, working with athletes mentally, emotionally, culturally. We didn't really get that. All we thought sport was was hard work, never giving in and working harder than anyone else. Back in those days, the way that coaches learned was either from each other or from going to courses where the people who were successful at the time were talking about relentless hard work. You had an incredibly influential and a great coach, great coach in New Zealand, Arthur Lydia, who was talking about doing a lot of hard work. We had a brilliant swimming coach here 
in the 60s and 70s called Forbes Carlisle, and he wrote a book called Speed Through Endurance, where he advocated lots and lots of hard work. And then the next generation of the coaches, the 70s and the 80s, they all adopted this, let's do lots of work, let's work harder than anyone else. And the way it was delivered was basically everybody who walked in the door was told, let's work harder than anyone else is prepared to. And that became very much part of the Australian and New Zealand culture of those types of sports. We, no matter what the person wanted, we would say, you're going to do 10 sessions a week or you're going to run 100 miles a week. It didn't matter. What we do now, Piney, and this is the critical point, is we say to every athlete, what do you want? Why are you here? So it becomes about them. It's not about me wanting to be a great coach or it's not about a philosophy of coaching. It's looking at the athlete and saying, why do you want to be here? Now, the athlete says, oh, look, I'm just here because I want to have a bit of fun. I really like hanging out with my teammates. That's what you deliver as a coach, a fun, enjoyable, engaging, interesting session. Conversely, if someone says, coach, I dream of being the best. I dream of the Olympic gold medal. I want to be the best in the world. That's a different discussion. But there's only a very, very small percentage of people who want that. And I think one of the things coaches have got to get get their minds around now is the ones that want to be the best, well, that's a different discussion. But for 99% of people, it's not about that. It's about fun, enjoyment, excitement, engagement, families, friendships, and just enjoying the sport. Can we just talk about the 1%, the ones who do want to be the very, very best, whether it be in an individual sport or a team sport? Wayne, are there any inherent dangers in giving that much power to the players, having a player-driven philosophy? We hear about player power. Can it be a bad thing? It's got to be measured, and it's got to be real. We talk about the partnership now, Pliny. We talk about that with little kids, the partnership is coaches, parents, and athletes. With players, it's players and coaches working as part of a team. However, having said that, in the end, the players have got a significant role in owning the environment, the standards, the environment, the behaviours and the attitudes. But the coach is still the leader of the program, just as the CEO of an organisation sets the strategic course for the organisation, just as the school teacher is out in front talking about the syllabus and delivering a specific syllabus to help the students improve pass exams there's still leadership someone has to has to set the course of the ship however what we're much much better at doing is now is engaging the athletes talking to them about what they want to say okay guys what do you want to do well we want to be best super rugby team in the competition what do you believe it's going to require well we're going to have to work hard and we're going to have to work together good suggestion how are you guys going to go about it so the coaches now lead and direct by questioning by engaging by working with athletes rather than the old days, which was you will do this and you will do that, and you it's not about that anymore. There is no more sage on a stage. There's no more telling and yelling. It's engaging, inspiring, and working with athletes. A slightly different but related topic. Is there any research or anecdotal evidence to suggest that elite athletes, or, or even those who aren't elite, perform better or worse when coached by someone of their own gender? Not that I've seen it. I, I, I don't believe in it because I believe athletes are athletes. And I can tell you a very New Zealand story, and I, I can't go into to names, obviously, but a few years ago, Mike Chu, who's um, a great friend and works for the New Zealand Rugby Union, asked me to work with some female rugby coaches. And it was fascinating, Piney, because 
well, they were saying, well, I asked them exactly, exactly that question. And one of the comments the girls made, they said, said what we really struggle with, is, for example, is a lot of male coaches don't push us hard enough because they've got in their minds that we're females first and athletes second. And then some of the other athletes there said, no, 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 I disagree with that. Some of the other female coaches said, no, no, I disagree with that. I prefer to work with male coaches. And some of them said, well, no. So even within the population of female athletes or male athletes or any group, I don't think people really can come up with an agreement that say, yes, we must have all of that gender or all of that gender. It's, it, to me, it's more about personal connection. It's about who do you get along well with? Who do you communicate with? And, you know, we see this even in the Olympic sports, that there's some coaches who are just better, for whatever reason, at communicating with, engaging with, connecting with, understanding their own gender, and others who are just as effective working with the opposite gender. In the end, I say to coaches, it's not about gender. It's about human beings. It's about individuals. It's about connecting with, understanding, and working with each individual human being based on who they are as a person. Then we get lost very much in just blanket, all of this or all of that, and making broad general statements. It's very much about the individual and connecting with them and building a relationship unique to them to give them what they're looking for as a human being. That's interesting because there are plenty of of examples of, of males coaching females uh, teams or individuals. There aren't anywhere near as many of women coaching men. But if it's about relationships, I mean, women are great at relationships, aren't they? They're, they're great at building them and, and, and retaining them. So why aren't there more women coaching men's teams? I don't know that, that sports have been good enough in providing great opportunities for female coaches. I've just done a, a review of swimming coaching here in Australia and talking to, and one of the, the clear items that Swimming Australia wanted me to look at was why are there so few female coaches at elite level or at any level? Now, the female coaches themselves, so this is me interviewing female coaches, about 60 or 70 that I spoke to or interviewed by surveying questionnaire or by phone, they said that the life of a swimming coach in that sport, or you could say the same in gymnastics and many of the other Olympic sports, is very, very difficult for a female because in spite of the considerable changes that we've made in, in society and culture, the bottom line is so many females are still largely responsible for the care of children, child raising and, and taking care of the family generally. So in the case of a swimming coach, gymnastics coach, rowing coach, cycling coach, for example, the athletes are asking the coach for everything they've got between 5.30am and 7.30am and once again, they want everything the coach can provide from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., which are critical times for young children around food and school and so many. And so many of the female coaches I interviewed just recently said the reality is it's tougher for us because of what society and culture demands of us as females. I don't know there's an easy answer to that, but I certainly know most sports have got to be better at advocating for the rights of females to be to be given more opportunities to develop in coaching. And I don't know there's an easy solution to it, but I know sports have got to be a lot better at it. Mm. Do you think it needs a couple of trailblazers? Do you think it needs a couple of of, uh, of people to break through, a couple of female coaches to break through and to, to show what is possible? Is that what is needed, perhaps? Yeah, no doubt there has to be. There's got to be some opportunities. There is no reason that I can see, and I've met some brilliant, absolutely brilliant coaches in New Zealand and many codes, but some of your, your female 
rugby coaches that I've met are outstanding. There's no reason why they can't be in super rugby environments. There's no reason why they can't be leading Mitre 10 programs in terms of their coaching prowess. And what I've seen quite often one of the questions I get asked, Piney, and this is a very controversial one, and you may get a couple of calls on this one, but quite often what I'm really against is why I call tokenistic appointments where they just say, oh, no, no, let's put a whole bunch of female coaches there or do that. Let's, I, I, I honestly believe that, that all coaches want to be outstanding at what they do and want to be brilliant. And I think sports, if they go down a path of saying, we're just going to apply a numbers game, let's have more female coaches, I don't know that's the right solution in just, just throwing numbers at it. I think they've got to seriously invest in helping female coaches to learn, to grow, to get better, and then give them opportunities at the highest level of sport. That's critical. But I think some sports just, they don't give it enough genuine focus. They make a political decision and say, yeah, let's have five of these. I don't think that's respectful. I don't think it's the right way to go. It's got to be a serious commitment to giving female coaches more opportunities to be all they can be at the highest level of sport. Great, very interesting. Just before you go, I want to take you back to the rugby, actually, and just talk about Ryan Crotty. Uh, it, it dominated uh, our airwaves in the 48 hours following the Test match on Saturday night. Uh, you know, another head knock for Ryan Crotty. Uh, should he uh, perhaps think about giving the game away? Should he, um, you know, should he have a serious look at uh, what his future might look like if he continues playing? Do you have any thoughts on on Ryan Crotty and the and the knock he took on Saturday night? Yeah, and it was terrible, wasn't it? Again, you, you just feel sick for the poor player and their family and the person that caused the, the, both sides of the head knock. You feel terrible for both of them. Look, in the end, I, I'm, um, I'm very much player-focused. I'm very much what's in the best interest of the long-term welfare and health of the player concerned. Obviously, it's such a tricky situation, isn't it, Piney, where the, the, the player themselves has to have the opportunity to earn an income and to, to realise their potential and to enjoy the experience of wearing the black jumper. That's so critically important. But also of even greater importance is their health and well-being as a human being, being a great dad, being a great contributor to society, hopefully being an outstanding coach and bringing forward a future generation of all blacks as well. So... A tough one to, to balance, but in the end, you've got to think first and foremost about the welfare and well-being of the player involved. And just finally, on the Wallabies, as we mentioned at the start, they've uh, they've tried something different. They've uh, they've decided to spend the the first part of this week and lead up to Saturday's second test on Waiheke Island. Is this just a matter of them trying something different? Because uh, you know, if you keep on trying the same things and uh, and, and get the same result, that's the uh, dictionary definition of insanity. Is this them just trying something <laughs> something fresh and new? Mate, I've been to that island, and I, I think there's a strategy behind it because you spend most of your time looking around behind trees and bushes to try and find kiwis. Maybe they've figured out that if they can do it that way, they can actually fight them in Eden Park. 